Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Science of Self, where you change your life from the inside out. Today is December 28th, 2023. Happy Thursday. In today's episode, Peter Hollins reminds us that the brain's not perfect, but we can still work with it. Yes, our beloved command center isn't infallible. Think of it like a supercomputer riddled with quirky bugs and charmingly outdated hardware. But here's the good news. Understanding these limitations is the first step to hacking our own neurobiology. This episode draws from the brilliant pages of Superbrain by Peter Hollins. Check it out at Amazon and Audible. Thanks for joining us today. We've said many positive things about the brain and its amazing capabilities. While they're deserved, and neuroplasticity suggests that our brains are infinitely adaptable and malleable, this raises the question of why we struggle so much with our goals, habits, and practices. You're probably reading this book precisely because you wish your brain performed better in one way or another. If our brains are so well-evolved to deal with life, why do we struggle so much with them? There are two key aspects to the answer. First, clearly, we don't always know how to use our inbuilt brain mental capacities or how to apply the best strategies. Think about it. How to use your brain versus just the content you put into it is something we rarely get taught in school or anywhere else even though knowing how to learn or change our habits could give us a major boost in literally every aspect of our lives. So, it's a question of lack of knowledge and understanding. The second reason is that our brain is not perfect. It is amazing, but it's also a flawed and complicated organ, just like any other. It functions in particular ways, with real limitations we need to acknowledge. Remember, it's a physical organ, not a computer. It'd be foolish to deny these basic flaws or principles, but we can get the best results quickly when we acknowledge our natural limitations and work intelligently around them. In the next chapters, we'll explore various techniques to help you achieve your goals. Each is based on the brain's biochemistry and its function and supported by scientific evidence. However, The techniques are general and should be adapted to your particular situation and objectives. The goal is to provide strategies based on the principles upon which the brain naturally operates. You can use these techniques to achieve your goals, as they are general and help you enhance your skill development, personal and professional growth, time management and learning, or whatever else you'd like your brain to create for you. With this much possibility... It's good to see concrete examples in action, though, so each technique will also come with specific examples. Then, it's your job to see how the technique can be applied to your own life and whatever is especially relevant for you now. Each technique comes with a short introduction explaining the theory behind it to give a broader context and all the details for the technique. Each is meant to be generalizable to different areas of your life. We'll first consider the tips we can find by recognizing the limitations our brain naturally has to turn them to your advantage 
and reduce the negative impact these limitations might have on your life. The techniques have a broad purpose and apply to any goals you want to reach, such as exercising regularly, living a healthier life, acquiring a new profession, or building a stronger relationship with yourself. After this, we'll focus on learning and all the best strategies for learning any skills or knowledge you want in your life. The techniques offer a way to learn that sticks with you and offers long-term results faster and with greater returns. Connections and habits are key. You can't use what you don't have. We can't use what isn't there. Simple, right? Unless you have the proper connections, and these are strong enough, you'll struggle with different tasks and skills. The things we want to do well need to be practiced more than those we don't care about, and we can't expect to perform well in anything we've not practiced before. The brain can't instantly pick up new skills, and it requires practice before a habit settles down. So, if you've ever tried to pick up a new habit and failed, you know why. It takes a lot more time than you might think. This applies not only to specific skills, like speaking a new language, playing a musical instrument, or drawing. It also applies to more general abilities and functions that underlie a variety of situations and can have a huge effect on our daily lives. For example, self-control can improve with practice, as can emotional regulation, attention, memory, etc. By focusing on these underlying cognitive processes, we can earn massive gains across many areas of our lives. Neuroplasticity can help improve many things, even those we might consider intrinsic to ourselves or just something that's always been a particular way. If you've never been able to do this or that, neuroplasticity can mold that in many cases, but again, it takes time. You're not just abstractly changing your mind. You are literally and physiologically changing the connections between neurons and altering the structure of the tissues in your brain. So be patient. For example, it's clear that ADHD, or attention deficit disorder, is a neurological condition that affects many areas of a person's life and has a basis in the way the brain is structured and functions. This condition is chronic, but with brain training, individuals with ADHD can improve their ability to pay attention and restructure their brains. While it's not a full solution to ADHD, it shows there's always room for improvement with neuroplasticity. Technique number one, automation and trigger routine reward. So, we know that neuroplasticity can help us make new connections that lead to new habits becoming stronger with practice. Neurons that wire together, fire together, basically means that every time you use a certain neural pathway, you cement it and make it more likely to fire again next time. We also know that our brains work through associations with the connections we build on a neural level. Using these two key principles of neural functioning, we'll learn to automate our habits through the habit loop. How it all connects to the brain? We create habits through neuroplasticity, 
and the neural networks that are the building blocks of our brain's architecture. But the brain relies on habits representing the strongest connections between neurons to get us through the day. Habits are also a primary influence on our brain's functioning and structure because they get repeated and reinforced over and over. Habits are what shape our brains, no doubt about it. We repeat actions so much that they form strong synaptic connections, literal shortcuts in the brain. This is a good thing, since it means your brain can free up energy if it does things on autopilot. But not all habits are beneficial, obviously. Repeated actions have small but cumulative effects, so the best way to make a change is to shift into habits to serve us better. This is not quantum leap territory, but rather a slow and steady rewiring. Without habits, our brain would become overwhelmed, and constructing the right framework can help us save energy for what truly matters. If people lose the ability to make habits due to brain damage, they become unable to focus on anything and perform basic activities so caught up in uncertainty they cannot function. Being automatic isn't necessarily a problem, but you want to make the right things automatic. Habits determine our levels of happiness and success much more than other factors simply because of this cumulative effect and because they enable us to reach the best results. Author James Clear has popularized the habit loop, but we can find similar ideas in research, too. The loop involves various elements we need to construct to create a new habit successfully. Trigger or cue The trigger or cue is the first step. It is an internal or external experience that will signal that it's time for the habit. Here are a few examples. You feel hungry. Q equals hunger, so you eat. You pick up your phone and check your messages. Q equals boredom. Your alarm rings and you get up to hit snooze. Q equals the alarm. This is the start of the loop. Response or routine. This is the habit per se. What will you do when you experience the Q? Some people smoke when stressed or grab a snack whenever they walk by the kitchen. Others exercise after waking up. The routine or response you have to the cue is the behavior you might want to show in the circumstances. The response and the cue don't necessarily have to relate to one another, and the routine can be beneficial or harmful. Reward The reward is the experience you get at the end. It might be the sweet taste of a treat or seeing a new email or new message you wanted to get. A habit can become cemented even if you don't get the reward every time. Many habits, like checking our emails, become strong because they don't lead to the reward every time, only sometimes, and we never know when this reward will appear. This is called intermittent reward, and it's what keeps gamblers hooked. The possibility there could be a reward just around the corner, so you'd better do the behavior once more just to see. Rewards reinforce behavior and consolidate certain neural pathways. They're mediated by the brain's reward system and neurochemicals like dopamine. Many of our habits are already streamlined, so we need not think about them. For example, 
you might have a strong loop of brushing your teeth. After eating, you brush them and experience the feeling of freshness. Once a habit is in place, you experience little or no effort to keep it running. Our healthy and unhealthy habits can operate with the same levels of automation too, so changing them is not about eradicating bad habits, but replacing the ones you already have, creating new habits, and breaking the existing loops. We can kill two birds with one stone, replace some of the existing negative habits with healthier ones, and practice them until they become automatic. How long does it take for a habit to become a habit? That is, when your DLS takes over? You might have seen the 21 days figure, which gets repeated a lot, but this has been debunked. 21 days is a good first benchmark, but likely it will take more time than that. The second benchmark is 66 days. After 66 days, many people will already experience a habit as an automatic practice. However, it will still be important that you do it every day to avoid losing any gains. The third benchmark is 90 days. Over this time, you are certain to establish an automatic habit. Research suggests that it takes an average between 60 and 90 days to form a solid, automated practice. So these are good goals to set for yourself to have more manageable timelines. Keeping a habit becomes easier each day, so you're unlikely to invest the same amount of effort as time goes on, i.e., your effort will taper off. Consistency will ensure that it is easier each time to carry out the new habit. The exact time frame likely depends on a mix of personality, circumstance, and what you're trying to make a habit. Whatever the number, though, you can take advantage of the habit loop to create a new habit that helps you and doesn't hinder you. How? Easy. Break down the habit into the three key parts, cue, response, and reward. Then, reverse engineer it to use your inbuilt habit machinery to do the behavior you choose. What's the cue that will signal that it's time for the behavior? Attach it to an existing situation that happens often and that you can't miss. Waking up, hearing an alarm, getting a notification, the clock showing a specific time, etc. Find a consistent cue. To get rid of a bad habit, identify the cues that triggered that and attach a new response to this trigger. Define the cue as clearly as you can and decide on your response. Keep it simple and manageable. You need to have a realistic response. If you've never gone running before, for example, don't set a goal of running for an hour every day at 7. Decide on 10 minutes to start with. If you never get up early, don't expect you'll be able to sustain a 6 a.m. waking time all of a sudden. Unrealistic goals can be difficult to accomplish, and you're likely to drop the new habits before they form, which can make you feel disappointed and guilty. A consistently difficult habit might not be the best choice. Think if there are similar responses you can use instead that are easier or if there's a way to make this response simpler for you. A small habit can have a big influence if you can be consistent about it. Once you've established the response, consider the reward. 
Many bad habits have a clear reward. Smoking brings relaxation, and candy feels nice and gives us a little boost of dopamine plus energy associated with carbs. Good habits can sometimes be challenging because the reward is less obvious or immediate. Because of this aspect, it's important to focus on your motivation. Why do you want this habit in your life? The more motivated you are, the easier it is to maintain a habit and create a reward. When you engage in the habit, focus on your satisfaction because you are achieving your goals. Find where the reward is in the new response. A pleasant sensation, the satisfaction of a job well done, or any other experience that can help repeat the habit once again. This creates two strong associations between the behavior, cue, and reward. First, your brain learns to engage in the behavior when the cue occurs, and second, has positive associations with the response. The habit becomes integrated into our brain's networks, and the associations grow stronger, so it gets easier each time to engage in the habit rather than in another behavior. Having an established routine can help you save a lot of energy regarding automation. A routine does not require conscious effort or thought, which helps the brain reduce the energy it spends on these practices and makes it a lot easier to continue doing the things that work best for us. A routine that supports our goals is the best way to become healthier and improve our skills. Gladwell suggests that the key element for improving skill is practice, and practice is better when we do it consistently and mindfully. One of the best ways to practice the skills we want to develop is to create a routine that supports taking the time and effort to work on the skill every day, or as often as possible. Automation means you need not make a conscious effort to engage in the practice, but that your brain is consistently rewired to improve and grow your skills. Fifteen minutes every day is better than an hour once a week, and routines can help with this. A routine is a series of habits that occur together. You'll have at least a few habits that make up a routine, and some probably work well for you. The main aspect of changing a routine is targeting bad habits and working out new associations that help each habit connect with the other. The keys to automation involve various elements. First, you can pre-make your decisions. What does this mean? You'll decide on the routine and then carry it out time and time again without making choices every day. While famously this is the kind of things moguls like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg do with their clothes, for instance, it is an easy way to save your brain the effort and energy for daily choices. You can pre-make choices related to clothes, meal planning, organization, and significantly integrate everyday skill development without having to think about it. You don't have to make the choice to practice, you just do it which helps your brain process it through a different structure and do it easier, faster, and more efficiently. Here's an example. Anthony Trollope, the famous productive novelist, had the custom of writing for 15 minutes per hour for three hours. He required himself to produce 
250 words for each quarter. This allowed him to produce three novels of three volumes in the year when kept up consistently. This also illustrates the benefits of setting small goals and shows that simply making a manageable and effective habit can lead to huge gains over time. The benefits of this are that you only have to choose once. You don't have to do all the internal process of convincing yourself to do it, of deciding what to do, etc. Our brains like to save energy for better things too. Besides this, you can rewire your brain more consistently through small tasks repeated over and over again, much more so than through one-time events. Finally, it leads to great returns over time. You can find yourself achieving more through habits than other solutions. We can do better when we focus on a single habit at a time. This is also based on a particular characteristic of our brain. Specifically, we can only pay attention to one thing at a time. The Limits of Our Attention Attention is an important tool. It determines what we're focused on, and our attention can be directed voluntarily or involuntarily. At every moment, we're exposed to an endless stream of stimuli received by all our senses. We're also thinking, sensing, and experiencing a wide variety of internal things that also fight for our attention. Naturally, we have to filter the noise out to get to the point. Our attention is optimized for this, and we can recognize that we do our best when we only pay attention to one thing. The state of flow, characterized by being immersed in a specific activity or task, is the one that leads to most productivity and allows us to be at our most creative. In other terms, when we are only focused on one thing, our brains are operating at their best. We have limited attention capacity. We can think of it as a spotlight. We can only direct it at one thing at a time to become involved with this problem or task. There is debate as to whether we can only pay attention to one thing at a time, or two, or a few more. Still, strong evidence suggests that when we have to constantly switch between tasks, our cognitive capacity becomes lower. We're not as able to do our best, and there are productivity costs that can become significant. A modern work or leisure environment is associated with an endless stream of distractions coming from social media, our phones, and generally from the demands that life places on our brains. When our environments are full of distraction, we're not operating at our best. Some authors suggest that our brain does not have the architecture to perform two or more tasks simultaneously. While we can breathe, walk, and listen to music, our conscious attention and any tasks requiring it are more limited. We need not focus consciously to breathe and walk, so our brain may do other tasks. But if we're trying to have a conversation while writing a text, for example, or driving while talking on the phone, that's another matter. As seen in neuroimaging studies, the brain struggles to process and complete two conscious tasks at once. This happens because our dorsal and ventral attention systems interact 
with the frontoparietal network. When we want to do a task, the frontoparietal network from our frontal lobe represents the goal that guides how we place attention. The dorsal network selects the information relevant to that task from our thoughts and the sensory information coming through. One part of the brain outlines the goal, and, using this goal, other systems retrieve everything we need to accomplish it. When we have more than one task, additional demands on the attention networks with limited capabilities. The ventral attention network, meanwhile, is focused on filtering out distracting information. When there's more than one task, this network also fails, because there's information relevant to one task and irrelevant to the other, which interferes and makes people more likely to become distracted. All three networks need to work well to become fully focused on a task, and multitasking splits our attention and mixes up relevant and irrelevant information. Multitasking results in task switch costs. It's not that we can't try to multitask. It becomes more difficult, takes longer, and leads to worse outcomes. A switch cost involves reductions in accuracy, overall performance, or speed. It's unavoidable to have these costs when we have to switch between tasks because we're demanding more from the brain, and it's not optimized for that. We can always avoid multitasking. In some jobs, it's especially prevalent and even expected. However, when working on our projects or organizing our tasks, we can do what we can to minimize switch costs and maximize our attention to help our brain operate with maximum capacity. Remember, friends, knowledge is power, but applied knowledge is magic. So go forth, experiment, and make your super brain sing. Don't forget to share your takeaways and join the conversation in the comments. And until next time, stay curious, stay kind, and stay tuned to the science of self, where you improve your life from the inside out. <laughs>